Hi, I'm Drew Pressler, AVP of Supply Chain Advisory Services. Welcome to the Health Trust Candid Conversations podcast. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this conversation, recorded live at Health Trust University, I talked to Ahud Abuhijle, Director of Lab Operations at Tenant Healthcare, Jerry Onko, Senior Regional Director of Supply Chain at Tenant Healthcare, and Michael Overa, Senior Director of Lab with Health Trust. This episode is about integrating supply chain with laboratory operations at Tenet. We talk in depth about the planning and coordination of the Health Trust work plan for Tenet, the importance of forecasting and planning, especially for those long-term contracts, and breaking down the barriers between laboratory and supply chain. We also dive into the challenges and opportunities of lab geography, standardization, and how to leverage organizational expertise. I hope you learn as much as I did from these lab, supply chain, and contracting experts. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I'm here today with uh, three guests to talk about uh, some of the experience they've had with Tenet, integrating supply chain with their laboratory operations, uh, and just talking about kind of the, the journey they've been on and learn a little bit more about the successes and, and share some things with you about that story. Uh, I have Mike Overa from Health Trust, Jerry Onko from Tenet, and Ahud Abuhijle from Tenet as well. Uh, Mike, can you just share a little bit about your background and your role with this project? Sure. I'm the senior uh, director for uh, Health Trust, but I work as the service line director for laboratory for Tenet um, as the main client that we have in that space. Um, I provide a clinical support and direction for supply chain initiatives, working off the Health Trust work plan, which um, contains over 100 and some contracts for uh, laboratory specific uh, items. Um, and we do we work with the planning of it, the analysis of it, and the coordination around that whole work plan as far as when our contracts coming up and then how does that um, meet the needs of tenant not only currently but in the future. So some of these contracts are long-term contracts and you really have to start mapping out where you want to be not only today but in the future because some of them will go up to seven years. Right. Thanks. Uh, Jerry, how, how about uh, just sharing a little bit about your background, your role? Sure. Yeah. So. I've got a pretty uh, diverse background. I've been in healthcare now a little over half of my career. And prior to that, spent time in frontline operations with third-party logistics and consulting and uh, has actually served with Tenant eight years prior uh, to this go-around. I spent a, a couple of years with a, another GPO organization. Uh, but in my current role, I have operational oversight of supply chain duties for our Michigan, Alabama, and Tennessee markets. And then I also support uh, Ahud from a, a lab service line perspective. Great, thank you. And, and Ahud, how about uh, just a little bit about your, your role here with Tenet? Yeah, so I've been a medical technologist for about uh, 25 years. Um, I had different roles throughout my career um, at Tenet. I've been with Tenet for uh, two years uh, as the national lab director. My primary responsibilities is managing and supporting 65 uh, hospital labs and 25 surgical uh, hospital labs, uh, driving their standardization initiatives, supply chain initiatives. Uh, so both a little bit of on the supply chain side and the clinical side. Great, thanks. And I'm gonna turn it over here, Mike, to uh, lead us into our next discussion topic. Sure. The first thing um, we want to talk about is the the complicatedness uh, surrounding the lab and supply chain. 
um, in my years uh, as a laboratory director, uh, we had minimal contact with the supply chain side of the business or purchasing or, or uh, strategic sourcing, as we, we used to call it in all different uh, iterations. And what I've always heard, and including since I've been here at Health Trust for the last five and a half years, is that laboratory is complicated. And so people have a tendency to want to leave it alone, which is if it's working, it's working, let's not touch it. So um, we're trying to break down those barriers between supply chain and laboratory. And I think that Tenant is a good case study in how to do that and, and really talk about what's working and what's not. But first, Jerry, you're new to um, laboratory. Uh, you've never had experience with it. Why, why don't you talk about your first reaction or your first interactions um, with the laboratory side of the business? Yeah, sure. So I appreciate that, Mike, because coming into this uh, position, I, I never have supported lab from a sourcing standpoint. Lab operationally has always been a customer customer of mine and making sure that they have their products that they need at the right quantities at the right time. But now coming in, uh, supporting lab sourcing and contracting, uh, you know, I, I, I'm bringing in tools and techniques and processes and methodologies that I'm familiar with in other service lines and other projects that I have sourced in the past. And so I didn't come in looking at lab as necessarily being any more complicated or not, just an unknown to me. So I brought in those processes and methodologies. And, and as I got here, um, and as more as, that I learned, you know, I, I quickly learned that having a resource like Mike, very deep lab background in Ahud, tremendous lab backgrounds, uh, you need that, right? You, you need that to be successful. And so they, um, they actually make all of the major decisions and I support them from a contracting standpoint. So I do my best to bring uh, my background and knowledge in, in the methodologies and sourcing that I can and then rely on them to kind of help navigate the complexities within the lab uh, equipment and disposable landscape. Uh, did you want to talk about um, not only what you're doing today from the tenant perspective, but maybe even in the past, what your relationship was with supply chain and how that's evolved over uh, time? Sure. So in my previous role uh, as a lab director, uh, my uh, interactions with supply chain was much limited uh, scope. So Jerry and I uh, joined Tenet within two months of each other, uh, and that uh, helped us establish some uh, baseline uh, processes and workflows that we both felt we need to follow uh, and hold ourselves uh, accountable uh, moving forward. Uh, the next step for us was to actually establish uh, the workflow and communicate it uh, to the frontline staff and the lab directors within the system and also hold them accountable to the, to the established and agreed upon uh, workflow. Um, being fresh together and starting at the same time uh, and not having to start over a process of uh, repeatedly really help us in, in, in getting to know each other very well and, and work together very well. Yeah, and I could add to that. I, I think um, one of the things that I've seen is the evolution of Tenet, even just over the last uh, six years since they've, they've come on board with Health Trust. And when you talk about accountability, it, there, the amount or level of accountability that there is today versus what it was five or six years ago but it, within the lab um, has certainly improved. And, and there's more of an accountability passed down to those folks. Um, and you really see it. And, and one of the ways you see that is that the organization itself, and again, I'm talking about the laboratory specifically, 
moving from a, a reactive approach to that proactive approach where now you're starting to look at things ahead of time and, and starting to see things um, before they actually happen and making a strategy around that and goals around that. So to mitigate any kind of uh, bad things that could happen down the road, but try to make improvements as we move forward. So uh, when I see that within an organization, I think that's, you really made a turning point um, and, and there's only good things that can come out of that. Uh, within the laboratory at Tenet, Ahud, is there anything that's unique about the Tenet laboratories? Oh, yes. Uh, geography is one, one of them. Uh, we are um, spread out throughout the nation, um, which actually provide us with the challenges and opportunities. Um, some of the challenges that we have is, is the different regulations that some of our labs have uh, to live by because of different state regulations. Um, so even when we consider a, a process change or a standardization uh, initiative, sometimes we're limited if a state has different rules uh, or regulation or more strict reg regulation in that perspective. The other challenge that we face is uh, when we're looking at standardization efforts and uh, trying to follow our philosophy of actually going with a sole source vendor for a certain contract uh, is the, the different sizes and complexities in our labs. Um, and we find out that one vendor cannot always meet the needs that we want. So that forces us for a dual source uh, contract uh, just by the complexity and the sizes of our uh, laboratories. Now from uh, an opportunities for us, we do have uh, tremendous ex expertise within the system. It doesn't matter what issue I'm looking at or trying to resolve. I always find somebody who's done it before, who faced it, who knows about it, who's the expert in the subject and, and can provide us with that resource that we desperate, desperately needs in some situation. Yeah, you mentioned geography. One of the things that I've seen and, and that I had to go through with uh, my previous organization was talking about consolidation of services. And, and you guys, I know, we'll talk a little bit later probably about are more in depth about consolidation opportunities. But in the laboratory, you're moving a specimen. You're not moving a patient from one location to another, but you're actually moving a specimen. That is much easier than moving a patient. So when you talk about radiology, trying to consolidate in a region, you've got to move the patient from one facility to another. So it does make it a little bit easier. And I should try to explain that to my staff. You know, we can consolidate because we can do this. We can move that specimen. Um, we can't move the patient around. So. Um, that's important to understand, I think, from the outside. As far as um, the complicatedness of the laboratory purchasing, Jerry, do you have any other viewpoints about why it's so complicated or why it's perceived as complicated? Uh, yeah, well, now I, I, I do. Uh, coming in, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I just bring in what I know are you know, solid sourcing methodologies and, and processes. Uh, but I really can't see how you could could be successful with with those processes only in the lab. You need a much deeper knowledge of the clinical nature of the equipment, the tests being run, um, and that's a that that is a much more complicated piece. And that's where you know I have to rely on uh, you know folks like yourself, Mike and Ahu, to in the in our in our deep uh, knowledge within our field teams to bring that knowledge to the table. And then I can support that certainly using my uh, sourcing processes with the suppliers and of course work with contracting, et cetera, to make sure that we are 
uh, in a position where we have contracts now that um, mitigate risk of exposure to volume commitments or any other types of things that we've seen in the past that um, expose us to financial risk. So Ahud, on, on what Jerry was just talking about, did you have any other thoughts about that and how it relates to the folks that you work with um, as far as laboratory directors and all the different facilities? Yeah, um, lab is unique. Uh, I think that's part of the challenge why people are, uh, especially the outside um, supply chain uh, partners are hesitant to work with us. It is unique and it is different from other departments. Um, but also we have our own challenges in the lab sometimes because um, there is opportunities with our leaders to understand the process a little bit better. How supply chain uh, process actually work? What does a contract mean? How does it work? It's, uh, it's not as simple as, as we make it uh, or some of us think it is. Um, one of the things that we've tried to do in Tenet in the last two years is to improve this area is to actually have uh, the health trust board membership uh, get rotated between the lab directors annually. Um, I want them to see how the contractual process actually work before it even come to us. Uh, and why do we have to live with certain rules um, that we ask them to do and follow? Uh, this has been uh, very successful. We have received very positive feedback from the lab directors who've been through it uh, last year. We had three lab directors who actually participated in this program, and uh, we have one new this year. So I'm really hoping this process actually expand their knowledge and, and make it uh, uh, more streamlined and, and put us all on the same page moving forward. Great. Um, one of the things... Um related to obviously to what we're talking about is capital and how do we um, go about obtaining capital equipment. But there, I, I always lump laboratory into to three things that we purchase. One is a consumable. So it could be a needle. It could be a tube. Pretty straightforward, like buying a Band-Aid. Um, the other would be just capital, which is your refrigerator, your centrifuge, um, could be a, a desktop or something like that, but pretty again, pretty straightforward acquisition. Where it gets complicated is with um, a lot of our major equipment, chemistry, hematology, uh, urinalysis, coagulation, where you have to buy a high-priced piece of equipment along with a reagent stream that's gonna go on for five to seven years. So can you talk a little bit about how Tenet looks at that and um, some of the uh, things that you've done from a contractual basis, uh, obtaining capital equipment? Uh, so, yeah, good question, Mike. Capital, uh, the acquisition process for me comes in when we uh, identify the need, which which uh, capital dollars and, you know, pieces of equipment and modalities we want to target. And as we do, so I, I'll work with the vendors along with you know who, and we'll uh, work on value-add agreements such as placement agreements and and really focus in on value adds where we can leverage those uh, those types of things within health, health trust contracts. Um, we'll look for capital construction assistance um, and any anything else that we can really negotiate with S2s or SIPs and, and really get the best uh, the best pricing. And just due to those efforts and uh, working coordinated as a system, we've been able to to really add millions of dollars of value adds within our our facilities, um, much needed. Uh, to help our facilities with with better equipment and upgraded equipment and equipment that they uh, they didn't have that they 
they now have. Oh, did you want to add anything to that? Um, any processes that you go through as far as capital and working with the laboratory directors in the different areas? Yeah, I mean, Jerry did a good job of summing the process up. Uh, the placement agreements that we have uh, really helped us in uh, upgrading our, uh, and gave us, gave us an opportunity to upgrade our instrumentations in the laboratories um, and, and also help us uh, through the standardization initiatives that we have. Yeah, and I think, Jerry, you alluded to SIPs and S2s and, and things like that, which are part of the health trust contracts that actually allows when Ahud says we want to standardize across the system for a certain product, that there's other opportunities for savings through those different um, areas, whether it's an S2, which is strategic sourcing, or through a SIP, a standardization incentive plan, which I think are, are great. And I think one of the things that an organization wants to try to do is maximize those. And so anytime you can do that, you want to do it. And so I think, Ahud, you've done a good job communicating those back to the um, – the laboratory directors as far as opportunities to look at. And it's not the whole equation, but it's part of the equation of when we want to go out and purchase something across all the facilities and standardize. Um, Ahud, you had mentioned this earlier about um, sole dual and multi-source contracts. Is there a certain philosophy that Tenet has around, um, sole is pretty specific or straightforward, dual's close, but really around multi-source contracts. You know, if Health Trust has five contracts in a category, this tenant go, oh, you can buy any of those uh, products out of those five sources, or do you minimize those in some way? Yeah, no, definitely. We try to minimize it uh, to as to one or two. Uh, again, my preference and my philosophy is one is the best option for me, uh, but the reality doesn't always work that way. Um, so in, in, the, in those situations where one vendor cannot meet all of our needs, um, the maximum we will go to is, is two vendors to actually finish a process for us. Jerry, do you want to add anything to, to that? Yeah, yeah. so, you know, the, the, the whole um, standardization in sole, dual, multi-source, they all kind of tie in together. And, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a process here, right? And, and, and Ahud is kind of the architect and, and we, you know, Mike certainly supports that. But, you know, we, you know, we look at all the pieces of equipment, the testing, who has what uh, legacy contracts, that's all got to go into account to say, here's what we're going to tackle and here's how we're going to tackle it. And, um, you know, we have a sole source agreement, you know, that's pretty cut and dry. We have multi-source agreement. Uh, well, we want to try to take advantage of that by coming up with the preferred provider uh, alignment. And so that may take years to get to, but, um, you know, that's where, you know, we talked earlier about supply chain and, in lab, and this is, you know, I, I can bring certain things to the table with processes and methodologies, but Ahud and Mike really kind of are the architect. They got to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and say, we're going to go ahead and focus in on the, this area to standardize, and we're going to use the health trust, uh, you know, uh, ability to, to do a SIP to get better pricing or an S2. And so we have to look at all of that and to uh, take all that into consideration. And then I'll help, of course, work with the contract uh, with the suppliers to to bring those contracts to fruition in our best interest. And, you know, something to add, Mike, is uh, from a, why I think solo or a dual maximum is best for us. It goes beyond even supply chain and savings. 
we are going through uh, very limited resources when it comes to staffing um, nationwide when it comes to medical technology. Um, so standardization and, and keeping it limited to one or two vendors allow us to standardize policies and procedures, uh, training programs, competency. Uh, we run into issues where we have to share staff within the market uh, and that really help us through that process. So again, it's not just from a financial and, and supply chain, it really goes to the clinical side and the technical side of it too. Right, right. Can I, I just want to ask a, a question. You know, you were talking about, uh, Jerry, the how far out you have to look. I think these capital agreements are different than when you get into you know, med surge areas. You, you probably have a, a contract plan and a work plan for that year. Uh, if you look at medical devices, uh, probably looking at this year, next year, you all are talking in three, four, five years down the line where you've got these long-term agreements. So um, I, I just want to spend a little more time uh, talking about that, if you can share how you put that work plan together, um, how far out do you plan and, and how do you communicate that, that plan out to the field? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'm going to start and I'm going to let Ahud um, add to this because this, this is much more um, from a clinical perspective. There, so there's several things. The, the contracting terms um, are one aspect of it, and we need to understand how far out you know, we have legacy commitments and what those out clauses are, if any. Um, and so we'll make an effort as we're looking at a category to understand that. And then, uh, you know, we may have to use an out clause to get 80% of the people on board within three years. Uh, but, but it really also starts off uh, before that with what can we realistically get done this year with everything else going on in the last, especially with COVID the last couple of years, um, it's been extremely challenging. Um, because every time you switch uh, a vendor, there's going to be validations. Oh, oh, we could talk all about that. And um, so it's not just as easy as switching a piece of equipment. It's trying to switch things out that take a tremendous amount of time and effort uh, while you're doing your day-to-day -day operations and staffing is extremely limited. Right. So a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of factors actually play into that process. Um, some of them is technology related, uh, you know, how old is the technology we, we already have in our labs? What's out there? Uh, do we have an opportunity to actually go out and, and get more advanced technology? Um, and also, like Jerry uh, um, mentioned earlier, what projects do we have right now? Uh, can we actually handle a big project in 2022, for example? Um, and what's the big, what's the strategy and what's the, the focus for, from our senior leadership team? So we start there, uh, we go down to the field level and the lab director's involvement, uh, what's important to them, um, where from clinical perspective and technology perspective, but also from a saving uh, opportunities. So if there is a new health trust contract, for example, should we actually consider to take advantage of it? Um, and then we go from there. Once we decide this is gonna be our focus, then we will start the process officially. Yeah. Thanks. I'll add just one thing to that. I think when, when you start that process, the first thing you do is you need to have a good inventory of what you have. And I think that was one of the challenges that I don't just have seen it just with Tenet. I've seen it with a lot of IDNs is they don't have all the contracts in one place. And, and now you gotta go out and find them. You gotta find those expiration dates. Because if you don't know where you are, you, you can't figure out how, how to get where you wanna be. And so uh, that's an important piece is to, to kind of level set yourself at the beginning and then move forward with where you want to be and, and try to get to that end point. And when I had um, responsibility over a five hospital IDN, that was 
it took me five years to standardize because I had contracts that would go out five years and I couldn't turn them over until those contracts were done. I think we've done a lot, a lot in minimizing some of the, um, uh, terms and conditions in contracts would allow us to move a little bit more quickly if we needed to. Um, not that we want to, but if we had to, we, we have the ability to do that quicker than waiting five years, maybe I'll do it in, in three. But um, th those are some of the terms and conditions that we've seen that minimizes that. Um, some of the other things that we've done to minimize risk would be to, um, as far as volume commitments and trying to reduce volume commitments and make sure there's no penalty associated with not meeting a certain volume commi commitment or at least minimize the penalties that are associated with that. Um, and then we've also minimized um, any kind of penalty associated with an early out. So again, allowing us to move more quickly if we wanted to standardize to a different platform or things like that. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot to say, and I think I heard you hit the, the nail on the head with a couple of the different things as far as one size doesn't fit all. So you'd like to have sole source. That sounds like it's the best way to go. But when you look at things, it doesn't, doesn't always add up. Uh, one of the things I think you do, you, that you do a good job of um, as far as tenant is in a dual source agreement, you'll look at the both. So you'll say this facility A wants um, blood bank let's look at both and see how they fit within that organization and pick the best one based on not only clinically, but also on financially, which one meets the needs of that facility. And so in any dual source or multi-source, we do that within the organization. We look at all, we don't say, oh, you have to take this, but if there is a dual source or multi-source, we allow them to look at all the um, agreements out there and see what's best for them at that time. And, and you don't always see that a lot of times. I think one of the areas that um, I've seen a lot of improvement in, and, and the credit goes mostly to uh, Jerry on this, is the formation of, of master contracts for, for multiple vendors. And the reason I say that is if you look at the portfolio right now of all the lab contracts under Health Trust, uh, there's all uh, different types of agreements, but they're all dictated by the vendor. So when you're looking at one contract or agreement, you're looking at one contract or agreement, and it's going to look totally different. If, the next vendor you look at. And you think about that in context of, I'm trying to um, negotiate a contract with five different categories and five different vendors. I've got to have my legal review that, I've got to have my purchasing people review that, the laboratory people have to review that. And every term and condition is in a different place, it's written in a different way, and it's very hard to then compare, are they meeting all my needs as far as my terms and conditions? And so, I, again, I go back to, to Jerry. Is I, It was a conversation we were having. He said, why don't we just have our own master contract and dictate that to the, the vendors versus the vendors dictating, let's say, 100 different contracts to us? It just made all the sense in the world. And so we've had some success in doing that now where we actually give them the template that we have. And now when we want to compare contract to contract, we can see we know exactly where that term is supposed to be. So whether it's an out clause term or a commitment term or whatever, we know where it's going to be. We don't have to go hunt it in a 30, 40 page document. So Jerry, you want to talk a little bit about that, more about that whole process that we went through? Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, no, that's a good overview, Mike. I think uh, you're, you summed it up great where, you know, uh, every contract that we were reading when we first started was a different contract from a different vendor. And not only that, you even within a, a vendor and a modality, there were different flavors of the same type of agreement with depending on the facility and who signed it. And it just made it extremely complex. So 
for national agreements where we can, we did develop our own internal template, of course, with our own terms and conditions from a legal perspective that are, uh, are favorable to tenant. Uh, but then we also built into our agreement terms and conditions that we know that um, we want and that uh, we, in some cases, require, and we know exactly where to find them. Uh, and so we will go back and forth uh, with our suppliers and preferred vendors to uh, to redline and negotiate, and but use that as a template. And so, when especially for national agreements, now we have one flavor of contract. Every facility agreement that participates has the same flavor. There's not 65 different versions of the same contract out there. And it really adds a lot of ease to our process and understanding of the process. Uh, and so for us, it also provides a, a level of uh, risk mitigation because we know that our terms and conditions that are important to us have been built into the contract. Great. Um, there are a couple other things that I know that um, we worked on in those contracts was and most importantly is using the aggregated volume across all the facilities. You know, that's an important piece that we see. Those standardized terms and conditions. I've talked to other uh, IDNs and, I, and I, I used to do this when um, I was a lab director. Also is you want those standardized, just like you talked about. I wanna know what I'm putting in there. And if you wanna change that, I wanna know why you wanna change it. Versus the other way around where you've gotta to go to legal, they gotta to go to their legal and you go back and forth could be how many times, 20 or 30 times, <laughs> as we've seen in the past. Um, so I think, again, this is one of those things that um, was a great success, and hopefully we can continue to do that with other uh, the vendors in the laboratory space, and, and maybe even in other spaces if uh, people want to take that on. In that context of standardization we talked about, there, the next step sometimes is consolidation. So I know you've done some things in consolidation and are starting to work on that. Do you want to talk a little bit about consolidation within tenant and in the laboratory space and what you may be doing or working on? Yeah, so one of our uh, major initiatives in the last few years have been uh, microbiology consolidation. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we face in the lab right now is, is the resources, especially when it comes to staff and uh, a lot of uh, med techs are retiring. Uh, not, not a lot of people are going to medical technology schools um, so just like everybody else in the nation, we had to figure something out about not having a microbiology. Do we need a microbiology in every hospital? Uh, so that has been our focus in the last uh, few years. Um, we started uh, consolidating microbiology labs within the markets. Uh, we have not gone on a national level yet. I think I'm hoping we can do that in the next five years. Uh, but right now, our focus on a market level uh, we have basically almost on all of our uh, markets one core lab for microbiology uh, that service the whole market. Uh, it doesn't come without challenges, but in, in, it has been a successful model so far. We talked about uh, getting the field involved or getting the facilities involved. So do you want to go over a little bit about how all the different types of communication goes on between the laboratory the corporate laboratory folks and then the, down to the facility level? Yes, so we do have uh, a monthly meetings with all the lab directors and the supply chain directors. They actually join us on uh, the same call. Um, so from a supply chain perspective, they can hear all the initiatives that we're working on. We give them an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, we actually, if it's a new product that we have not uh, had in the system before, we ask for volunteers to be pilot sites for it. Um, so they're 
involved early in in the process. Uh, we get uh, we send out surveys to them, asking them about what they have currently, what's uh, what problems they have with the system that they currently own, um, what's their preference out there. Um, so they're they're already involved in the process um, before it starts. They know it's coming. They know we're talking about it. They know we're considering it. And then we're giving them an opportunity to be involved in it very early on. Um, being a pilot site for certain uh, initiatives uh, really give us real-time feedback from our own staff if they like something, what works well, what doesn't. Uh, and it also gives us an idea about how the vendors are going to work with us. Sometimes it's it's easy to work with the vendors of getting instruments to be piloted, and sometimes it's not. And that's kind of give you an, an idea how it might go long term. Depending on the project, we also ask for SME volunteers, uh, which is subject matter experts. And those are ex you know, point of care coordinators, uh, chemistry supervisors, hematology supervisors. Depending on what we're looking at, we form a small group that uh, get together, uh, be involved in the product evaluation process. Uh, we share with them the proposals that are coming from the vendors and let them uh, give us their feedback and, and input in the process. Um, that has been very successful for us. Uh, it, it takes away the, the feeling that, you know, the decision is coming from corporate and I have to live with it because they really have, they've been given the opportunity to be involved in the process from the beginning. Jerry, did you have anything to add to um, that discussion? Uh, yeah, so w what I would just add really quickly here is when Ahud and I started, we... Had, we knew that national lab director meetings uh, were taking place, but that we, you know, we did not know what the history there was. So we we built what that meeting should look like and how they should operate uh, based off of what we thought would work best. And so not knowing what used to happen, I could tell you right now that the meeting is more clinically focused with a blend of supply chain updates and health trust updates and um, asking for feedback into the supply chain and contracting updates. And um, and then who, uh, who runs that meeting and we support it. Um, and you know, that's, uh, that's just kind of how it's evolved and, and how it works and the team. Uh, I think the field team feels appreciated and they seem to, uh, uh, to enjoy it and provide good feedback to us. True. Did you want to um, kind of segue into the uh, COVID? Yeah. Uh, um, stuff? So, so I think, you know, we've been spending a lot of time, uh, you know, conferences and, and different webinars. And, and a lot of people are thinking back through the impact of COVID. Uh, you know, if I think back to, you know, January, February, um, the primary strategy that everyone was pushing to try to combat it was testing. Right. So if we didn't know where it was, then we didn't know how to manage those patients and, and try to you know contain it. Uh, so that resulted in hospitals and systems buying a lot of equipment, you know, trying to get whatever you could that was available. Uh, you know, now we're 16 months, 18 months later, uh, and now people have a lot of that equipment and trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, so, Hood, if you could share just a little bit about kind of the, the story and, and the strategy that you all went through and then maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you're looking at doing with that going forward. Um, what we did actually is focus on the areas where we had really bad spikes of COVID cases and high number of cases. 
and we focused our instrument placements in those areas just to give them some relief and, and, and be able to take care of, of patients. Um, as we actually were able to add more instrumentation throughout the system um, and, and the spike kept moving from place to place, um, what we did is we established a, a weekly tracker of um, COVID supplies that we have in each hospital. Uh, so each lab director, and actually we got them mostly from the vendors because we did not want to add more work to the lab directors. Uh, each vendor at the end of the week sent me a, a list of a number of how many COVID tests they shipped to each of our hospitals. So we had a snap, basically a picture of, of what we have, and we were able to move supplies within the system from state to state, basically based on the number of cases we have in each hospital and how much supplies we have. So if one hospital in Texas has plenty of supplies while one hospital in Florida is spiking and really need more testing, we were actually able to move those tests from state to state and help each other. Um, I remember actually one, uh, one incident that was stuck in my head, uh, one, one hospital in San Antonio needed help, uh, and, and Florida had uh, double shipment by mistake, and the lab director actually ran behind the FedEx truck trying to get him the shipment in time. It's like, Texas need this, we need to save the patients there, and he managed to actually get it overnight. So, you know, geography helped us in that perspective, going back to geography. Uh, and the team has worked together. I, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Um, you know, lab directors who, yes, they get on calls together once a month, but they've never seen each other in some cases. Uh, and they became best friends in, in the process. Um, the other thing that we've done uh, with COVID is, actually, uh, again, involving the frontline staff and, and the lab directors in the field to actually t tell us what they need. You know, at some point, it, it didn't become about just COVID tests. It became about every other supply in the lab. Um, so we, with the help of Jerry and Mike, we got them in a few of them on, the, on, the, on a call and, and said, what are you seeing back orders on? What are you using a lot of? Uh, what can we do to be more uh, helpful and more prepared, not just for COVID tests, but with others? Um, so we had a list put together based on their feedback and Jerry and his team went out and started sourcing these items in, in our warehouse in San Antonio. And I let Jerry touch on the warehouse in San Antonio, in San Antonio um, where, yes, by the time there was back orders on those items and nobody else can get them, we already had them. Uh, so that was a success story when it, when it came to COVID supplies, too. Yeah. Jerry, do you want to add from the supply chain side a little bit? Yeah. So I, I would say there's a couple of things. Uh, even before shortages hit, uh, we saw the uh, we saw the need for increased testing very early on, and we had to react very quickly. Things like VTM was one of our very first uh, items that we had to figure out. How are we going to get this type of uh, product so that we could do more in-house testing for the increased patient load and testing that we saw that was coming. Because at, at our current turnaround times, we, we'd have to wait days and there was a big push, not only nationally, but worldwide. And so VTM was a, a very hard thing to find and we, uh, we found it. We finally made, uh, developed the relationship and, and now we have uh, plenty of that. But that, that's just one example. The list goes on and on and we had flock swabs and 
in, in more and more items and even throughout the pandemic then. Uh, so we were able to get, that was kind of some examples on the very beginning of where we knew we needed some things. And then as, as the COVID uh, pandemic went on, we saw other shortages starting to happen. And then we would, the, the best way to hear about that is directly from our field. Hey, just let us know what you're saying. Let us know right away so we can react and, and, uh, and get on that as much as we can. And when we heard about those types of things, I would leverage Mike and his team as much as possible. And, you know, um, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to our health trust team members and Mike personally, because not all, all the answers were on health trust contracts. As a matter of fact, most of them were not. And he rolled up his sleeves just like anyone else and was a team member and found alternative sources of supply for another product. So it was a truly a team effort, but uh, that that's kind of, you know, how we work together uh, and integrate with the, with the field. And I think they know they can rely on us and we rely on them for information and uh, we'll act on it as soon as we possibly can. This is a great opportunity now for Hood. If you want to talk about some of the accomplishments that, that you've had over the last couple of years, um, whether they're supply chain related or clinically related, yeah, so even with COVID, we managed to, to get uh, several projects underway and completed in the last couple of years. Uh, one of them that uh, uh, we are finishing right now is uh, C. diff uh, standardization. So that, that actually uh, both clinical and supply chain uh, initiative, uh, we standardized the testing algorithm, uh, the policy and, and procedure for C. diff uh, within the whole system. Um, and then we had to um, choose a platform that we're going to perform the testing on. Um, so th that was a challenge for us. One of the, the first challenges that we actually went uh, through after COVID. Uh, it was a welcome change uh, to actually talk about something and do something other than COVID. Uh, maybe that contributed to the, to the success of the conversion, but... Um, that's something that I'm really proud of because it was not easy to do that in the middle of dealing with a crisis. Um, we're not 100% there yet, but we should be within the next 90 days. On the clinical side, uh, this year we established uh, some clinical uh, metrics uh, related to turnaround time and ED throughput. Um, so we built a dashboard that uh, shows how each hospital perform against each other. Um, and we're focusing on best practices right now. Uh, we have, we're inviting lab directors on, on the monthly call to share what they've done uh, in their own labs to actually make this process successful. And we're gonna be working, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of supply chain involvement here and actually helping the labs, uh, the low performers labs get where they need to be. Yeah, and I, I, just to add to that, I think um, the positive approach that you're taking with that versus making it a negative, like, oh, you're bad, versus, okay, you need help. And I think that's a much better approach than just penalizing somebody because they're not meeting it. But we're actually reaching out to them and saying, how can I help you now? We know where you are. Right, and then that was very intentional because initially we thought we're gonna show in our monthly lab, we're gonna show their low performance and it's like, tell us what your action plan is. <laughs> and then it's like, maybe that's not the best way to do this. Let's start with recognizing the people who are doing a great job and actually let them talk about it and give ideas to the people who might be struggling and then kind of go to the accountability. It's like, okay, somebody else did it. What can we do to help you to get there? 
Um, I mean, I think you were on the last call. It was very engaged group, very passionate discussion. So that, that I think that was a, a win for us there. So these are just few of the things that's coming to mind right now. <laughs> and this is all during COVID. This is all during COVID, uh, other yeah. goals and strategies you had. And then COVID hit and you still got through some of these goals and strategies. It was great. So, Drew, I don't even want to wrap yeah. up. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mike, Jerry, Ahud, for uh, the discussion today. I think it's been insightful. Um, before we close out, I just want to give uh, Mike and Jerry maybe a, a chance for any closing thoughts on the work that you all have done, uh, just talking about the partnership and, and any lessons learned that you may share with uh, those who might be listening. Um, for me, it's, it's always about communication. And um, we set up a... a calls now on a bi-weekly basis or twice a week we talk right it's the three of us and whoever else we need to talk to and, and i think that's really important because we kind of always level set ourselves those two days are my busiest days because i i'm writing i gotta do that i gotta do that i gotta do that and hopefully by the end of the day i can get that done or at least by until the next phone call i can get that stuff done but it keeps us moving forward is how i feel um i don't know how, how you two feel about those those calls but i i find them that they're necessary and we get a lot accomplished by doing but it that's that way. part of holding ourselves accountable that's, too. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think the other good thing is that we can bring in vendors that we need to talk to about certain things. So issues that we're having with certain vendors, we can bring them in and the three of us have the opportunity to, to go after them and, and try to figure out um, anything that's necessary to fix whatever problems we're having with. Yeah, no, I I I 100% agree about the communication. I mean, it's funny because you know when Mike mentioned this uh, this podcast to us, I mean, you know, we were kind of like, really. Um, so we felt that we were tr doing our best efforts to support our our you know field team members, and uh, felt good about that. But uh, never really thought that you know somebody might be interested in hearing what we have to say. So we appreciate the uh, the questions, but. You know, going back to what Mike said, it's all about, I think, communication and teamwork and, um, you know, putting aside individual agendas and working towards a common goal. And that's exactly what we've been doing. Uh, but I think those, you know, the, the, the meetings we have every week, uh, they work they work really well to, to hold ourselves accountable, like Ahoot says. And there's just a lot more to it. But, you know, we, we leverage our, our health trust partners as much as we can. Mike's been a great resource. Their contracting portfolio has been very good for us. Um, and then, you know, we have our own um, internal um, experts and then we have a hood and she helps set the direction in, in, in the plan for us. And um, yeah, you know, it's been, it's been good. I think there's still a lot of uh, things that we know that we could do and, and improve on, but I think we're off to a good start and wow, what a fast two years. Yeah, can't believe it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks, y'all. And uh, I hope you enjoy the last uh, evening and, and closing session of the conference. Thank thanks, you. Drew. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust's Candid Conversations podcast. Please visit education.healthtrustpg.com to find additional resources for clinicians and healthtrustpg.com slash the source to listen to more of our Candid Conversations podcast episodes.